This is A Lake at a Crossroads, and I'm Ingrid Thier. This is the third and final episode of a series of podcasts exploring the wonders of Lake Wanaka, a vast and stunning freshwater lake nestled in the Great Southern Alps of New Zealand, and also the threats confronting the lake and the community's efforts to protect it. If you haven't gotten a chance to listen to the first two episodes, go back and listen to them now. In the previous episode, we outlined the threats to Lake Wanaga, invasive weeds, urban development, and agricultural impacts, and the fact that there is a distinct lack of scientific information about the current state of the lake. However, the lake is precisely the reason many people came to live in Wanaka, and so there has been a groundswell of support for protecting the lake within the community. One such organization that has popped up has been the Upper Clutha Lakes Trust. You've heard from one of its organizers, Mandy Bell, in the previous episode. About two and a half years ago, we got a group of us together, and that came off the back of me actually sitting out here at my farm desk and having just come back from around the country on some other environmental work and wondering what was happening in in our region. And um, discovered there were 13 um, water-connected projects um, some of them were, were connected, but um, the majority of them weren't with um, being led by different entities. And I could see that there could be a great opportunity to link them together and think that we could leverage. And also, was there some things that we should be doing that we're not doing would, that would be better to do earlier rather than later? And there wasn't a, a coordinated plan. Over a period of eight months, we had 15 to 20 entities that we all took the time to sit around the table together and we had um, the CEOs of, of some of those groups. We had um, community members, farmers, tourism people, regional council, local council, scientists, iwi, and um, fish and game, so that was, and, that's, and more. And it was very, um, it was fantastic. And the community is really into it. Don Robertson, who we heard from last time and who was deeply involved in the efforts to protect the lake, explains the development of community interest over the last few years. More and more people are getting amazed and surprised at what they didn't understand about the lakes, and everybody just sort of sees them there looking good and thinks they don't need to worry about them, don't need to care. But all the evidence is that's been changing. And if you have a a public meeting with something to do with the lake, you'll fill the hall. And what we've found is that if, if you want, I guess, volunteers or people to help with these projects, are coming out of the woodwork and it's, it's looking good. The Upper Clutha Lakes Trust is just one of many organizations working to protect the lake. Simone Langhans, the freshwater ecologist based out of the University of Otago and studying the decision-making process behind environmental management plans, has observed this wave of involvement. There are actually a lot of different initiatives and projects that are currently taking place in the, in the whole region, Lake Wanaka, the catchment and, and in the downstream region. So there are actually more than 50 projects going on, led by the Otago Regional Council, NIVA, University of Otago, Otago Fishing Bay, all kinds of different like um, institutions are working on in, the, in that area. For listeners in the United States, Europe, or other parts of the world, this amount of community grassroots involvement seen in the Upper Clutha Lakes Trust and other local organizations may be surprising. But this can-do, innovative approach seems to run in the veins of the New Zealand way of life. Here's Megan Williams, another organizer of the Upper Clutha Lakes Trust. Bottom-up approach is a real Kiwi, Kiwi thing. Um, and yeah, people get involved, they see something that needs to be done, and they just get on and do it. 
So in New Zealand, water management is much more bottom-up driven, driven by the community. So the National Policy Framework for Freshwater Management, which has been published uh, in 2014, and it has just been amended in 2017. So the freshwater management policy states that the values, freshwater values are not objectives of the community. They have to be included when we develop a management plan here. So it also suggests how values specifically Maori relate to freshwater systems can be included. So that's com- that's completely different or quite different from your uh, European or other like international perspective where community participation is just like suggested in most regulations, but here it's really part of the deal basically. So the community has to be included. This bottom-up driven process has a lot of benefits, including being able to tailor solutions to specific environments and communities. But there are definitely some downsides as well. Despite the seemingly bottomless number of volunteers willing to spend their time and energy to help the lake now, what researchers call volunteer fatigue is a real concern. So yeah, I think um, it's a good thing, but it also has its negative effects is that people do get volunteer fatigue. It is often the same people who have that drive and you know, you see the same people in the community doing things all the time. So what should the community do to protect the lake? Unsurprisingly, depending on who you ask, you'll get a variety of answers. You could say that the community and the lake are at a crossroads in this decision, just like the original meaning of Wanaka as a junction point. Some say we need to stop urban growth, others say agricultural activity needs to be more highly regulated, and still more call for increased scientific monitoring. On the policy side, one fascinating potential action would be to copy what New Zealand lawmakers did for a river and a mountain in the North Island and grant Lake Wanaka legal personhood. Here's Nicola Wien, an environmental law professor from the University of Otago, explaining this legal maneuver. To the word of the mountain has its own legal personality. And all that happens in the settlement is the settlement says it has its own legal personality, but it's represented by the committee. So the same thing with the Whanganui River. It has its own legal personality, it is its own person, it is recognised as a person in the legislation, the river itself. As an as a entity as a whole, all its tributaries, everything is all part of its person, which is significant as well, because English law tends to break break things up you know you manage the banks the river separately from the river and the riverbed and that's that's how that law works so this works more holistically legally speaking then that person is represented by two people one person from Monganui and one person from the crown and that pair act as the river so if any of the river's interests are affected in decision making those two people can go along and they their job when they get there is not to represent their interests in the river, but to represent the interests of the river. And just how likely is this to happen in Wanaka? And how would it benefit the lake? Is that a big environmental step? Yes and no. <laughs> Looking at it, I suppose, through maybe a bit cynically, I, I don't know whether it's cynical or, or practically, nothing has been given to the persons who are the rivers and the man, the river and the mountain. They don't have any rights over and above anyone else. Yes, it's a, it's a step forward. It, what it is is a big leap forward in terms of Māori. Yeah, so the fact that the river is recognised as a person, how they see it, as a living, living entity, as a, as a whole thing, that's extremely significant to them and to their social, emotional, cultural well-being and everything else that goes with it. So it's incredibly significant in, in terms of in settlement terms. 
but I'd say the jury's still out on whether it's an environmental step forward or really just a different way of saying the same thing. Tanya Brett believes that there's a definite possibility that Lake Wanaka could gain legal personhood, and that could be quite beneficial for the lake. I do think it would be a step forward for, for the Crown taking ownership of the Treaty of Waitangi, and I mean it's not in just one part of New Zealand, but for all of New Zealand. Yeah, in, in my opinion, I think it would, be, it would be a great step forward for the Crown to acknowledge Lake Wanaka and its surrounding rivers as well as, as a possible settlement for the um, Treaty of Waitangi. For now, however, Lake Wanaka will remain in the care of the community without any of the potential benefits of legal personhood. Despite the variety of specific solutions proposed, almost everybody in Wanaka can agree on the need for a thorough management plan that will set up a system of protection for the future. The details will be contentious, but the junction point of Wanaka will continue to bring people together physically and socially as they attempt to care for this place they love. When we were in our about third strategic session with our Perth Water Group mm. and we had gone, we were in a process and we were in teams standing around the pieces of paper on the wall and Maggie um, spoke to one of the farmers and Maggie's an environmentalist. Um, and sadly passed away Sadly now, passed away. Dr Maggie Lawton. Yeah. Um, <coughs> and looked at the farmer and said, we want the same thing, don't we? And they nodded and I went, fantastic. Mm. This is this is um, when you start to make, you know, great progress is when there's a shared there's a you know we reach a point of shared understanding of um, where we're heading. And what's even more exciting is the level of involvement of the community in protecting the lake and the natural environment around it. People may have their own reasons for caring for the natural world, but our reliance on it is undeniable. That's why it's of the utmost importance, whether you live in Wanaka or Los Angeles, in Japan or Peru, that we take responsibility for our lives and our environments. The land we live on, the water we drink, the trees we cut down, and the plants we eat do not belong to us. We're part of a much larger cycle that requires balance and respect. Well, I think people are becoming more and more aware of how much our lives actually, and even more so our well-being, depend on healthy ecosystems can be anything like rivers, lakes, oceans, forests, any kind of ecosystem we really depend on. And that each one of us can actually make a difference in how these ecosystems will look like in the future. I think this awareness, just that people get that, yeah, that gives me hope that we can make a difference in the future. This podcast was created, edited, and produced by Ingrid Thier, Simone Langhans, and Mark Schallenberg. The music was created by Chris Selbach. Many thanks to Mandy Bell, Don Robertson, Simone Langhans, Megan Williams, Nicola Ween, and Tanya Brett for taking the time to talk with me. This work has been made possible through the support of the University of Otago in New Zealand, Williams College in the U.S., and the Mary Curie Fellowship from the European Commission. Thanks for listening.